Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast for a Champions League edition of our show. Of course, this is the most important piece of media that you're going to be listening to this week because I'm sure there is nothing else important going on this week. No tension whatsoever. And if there is, you certainly won't hear it from the three of us. We are fit as a fiddle and as relaxed as you possibly can be. Isn't that right, boys? Absolutely. And if you listen to the end of this episode, we will reveal who won Nevada. So something to look forward to. Uh, <laughs> exactly. They've, they've entrusted the ballot count to us. Yeah, I guess it was just to, you know, pull the pull the curtain back a little bit. Definitely a weird week to be kind of absorbing all of this soccer stuff. I, I ended the, the, the last show with the quote from Jurgen Klopp where it's like soccer is the most important, least important thing. And I was kind of doing that as like a, you know, fun little ending to the show before we got into this week. But now I'm like truly feeling the full reality of that, of that Klopp quote. Cause I feel like there, this was the first week in a long time where I've been like, where I was just throwing on a random Europa League game just to get away from everything. Well, anyways, we hope that you, the listener are taking it as easy as possible. We're going to run through these Champions League games, and we're going to touch on a little Europe League at the end. It was certainly a busy week of results in the Champions League. A lot of pendulum-shifting Champions League games and results. A lot of quality football on display as well. But let's start with some not-so-quality football on display. Once again, from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United, who we opened the show with last time. We're going to open the show with them again, because, Nathan, they have just provided Istanbul Bashakshahir with their first ever win in the Champions League. 2-1 to the Istanbulers. So, to be fair to Istanbul, they played PSG pretty well, and they played Leipzig pretty well. But, honestly, just a shocking defensive performance from uh, Manchester United. The fact that they conceded that goal, where they had one defender back from a corner, and then got caught out in a three-on-one, is just truly embarrassing. And I think this game, more than any other United game this year, has exposed Ole Gunnar Solskjaer rather than his players. We sort of talked about the results to, uh, um, with Arsenal at the weekend and how there was blame to be laid out for his players and for Solskjaer. But you have to think that like, when it comes to positioning players for, for set pieces, that's like directly the coach's job. And not having a player, not having at least two defenders back, it's not like they were down 1-0 in the 90th minute. They ended up conceding two pretty similar goals on the counterattack that were just really, really poor. And then they never really looked like getting back into the game, even when they had their goal. Van de Beek wasn't great. The subs were strange. Edinson Cavani has offered this team nothing. Like he looks basically immobile. Uh, and all in all, I think Ole might be fearful for his job if they lose uh, this Sunday against. Everton. So although the news is that, that the United camp are backing him through this sort of sticky period, which as a neutral is great to hear. Yeah, it's really strange, Caleb, because the report came out today from The Athletic that says that United have, you know, a little shaken faith in Ole, but they're going to stick with him regardless of how the Everton result goes at the weekend. But there's also like a separate report that indicates that maybe they might be sniffing around Maurizio Pochettino or that even 
they've made contact with Pochettino. But certainly this is another really tactically uh, fatal performance for Manchester United. And it seems to just provide the theme that this team under Ole keeps shuffling the deck in a variety of formations, but they're never consistently getting better. Yeah, I don't know how this team went from like being so defensively solid against PSG a few weeks ago to looking like they've never defended like ever in their lives. And I understand that, yes, on corner kicks and whatnot, to some extent that falls on Solskjaer. But I don't understand how like Harry Maguire isn't like, oh, someone has to like stay back. We can't have Demba Ba just waiting on the halfway line so the keeper can just punt it for him to score. Or for Visca's goal later on, yes, we're going to have three defenders on the other side of the box where the player isn't. Right, like it was, it was middle school quality defensive play, and even Rio Ferdinand, I think, um, was like, "This is so so bad." Um, and once again, I, I think that I don't like Juan Mata. He tried to give them a little more width, but Juan Mata is not super fast. So I don't think he opened up the game that much. I I think that if Man U lose at Everton at the weekend, then Solskjaer has to has to go. But the funny thing about all this is. Even after this result, they still remain on top of their Champions League group. So there's a strange kind of silver lining to it all, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's bizarre to me that after the positive run that United had at the end of last season, that it just feels like Ole (laughs) has taken over two years now to try and find out what his best 11 is. And he still hasn't come up with anything because now I feel like we're in the the third or fourth new formation for Manchester United. You know, they went with the diamond again. But as Caleb mentioned, Mata and Fernandez playing together, they don't offer a whole lot when it comes to mobility and pace and defensive nows. Pogba was dropped yet again. Van de Beek came in. Matic came in. So there really wasn't a lot of mobility in that midfield whatsoever. So no wonder that they they got completely caught out on the break, not once but twice. It just seems that like whenever Ole tries to organize a plan b for this team he ends up with a completely imbalanced team sheet and i just think if there's no consistency in development from the team you have to look at the manager and you have to think well maybe we could probably get someone else yeah and i know that they are still top of their group right now on goal difference and head-to-head but but they're so dire in the Premier league right and this group is incredibly tricky and this actually here looked like they were going to be able to pull it off against psg and they didn't but imagine if Basaksha here are able to get, you know, another win in their last three games. It's totally possible that we see one of United, Leipzig, and PSG dropping down to the Europa League on goal difference. And right now, Leipzig and PSG just look like they're playing much better soccer than United. It seems like the their champion, like United's Champions League run of form is now over. And I wonder if we're going to see some regression um, to their Champions League form after the international break. And I just wanted a quick note on Istanbul Bashekshi here because it was a weird feeling for me because obviously I'm going to root against Manchester United regardless of what team that they're playing. But I'm also like, <laughs> I know the history of Istanbul Bashekshi here and I know like exactly who they're connected to in Turkey. Hint, hint, it's Erdogan. And so it was like a very odd sensation for me to be like cheering really hard or supporting <laughs> this team that I know is some like questionable connections but it was also just like really strange to see that Demba Ba, Martin Skirtle and Raphael were in the starting 11 it was like a Premier League rejects team circa 2012-2013 exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it was just like all in all a throwback 
both like a throwback experience and like a very strange rooting experience for me on the day. But I think my joy in seeing United capitulate in Europe uh, trumped all of those bizarre feelings for me. But lads, we will wait with bated breath until the Everton match. Let us move on to one of Nathan's favorite clubs, RB Leipzig, went up against a Mbappe-less and a Neymar-less PSG at home. There was some early difficulty in the beginning. I think what you saw in this game was Nagelsmann once again attempting attempting to cope with the fact that he doesn't quite know where the goals are coming from in this team, Nathan. He deployed the uh, the three four two one again without a recognizable striker in the absence of, obviously, Timo Werner leaving to Chelsea. To be fair, it was a weakened PSG team, but aside from a couple of early chances in the first you know, 25 minutes that also included a missed penalty or a saved penalty rather by Peter Gulacci. I think Leipzig showed that they're capable of getting into these really, really incredible passing rhythms on the wings, which is one of the benefits of not playing with a striker. You know, you get these two attacking midfielders sort of come false nines in Forsberg and, and Kunku who can drop deep and just create these overloads. And you can see what Nagelsmann is trying to do. And I definitely applaud him for being risky. I think he's, you know, for a long time been seen as one of Europe's top up and coming head coaches, despite the fact that Leipzig brought in not one, not two, but three strikers this summer. um, None of them have really panned out as of yet. Uh, And it seems like this is going to be what they do going forward. And it took Upamakano and Konate, who are two of the best young center backs in the world, having like uncharacteristically poor games um, for PSG to to really be in it with a shout. And so all in all, it wasn't the most exciting game. The weakened PSG team and the fact that they ended up going down to 10 and then later nine men took a bit of the sting out of it. PSG now find themselves having some ground to make up in the group of death. Caleb, I think the last time we spoke about Tuchel was after the Champions League final. Do you think now, even with like Mbappe being out, Neymar being out for a significant amount of time, do you think his job is still in question in terms of the PSG board? Yeah, this is not the best return campaign following a Champions League final. They're third in their group. They have an even goal difference. I I still think they'll probably qualify at the end of the day, but certainly they haven't looked like, you know, a convincing team generally in the Champions League, not in the way that like Bayern have um, since winning the final last year. And, And I think this is the issue, right? Like if they can't really peak again this year or win the Champions League. Like it seems likely that Mbappe could be gone next summer. This team, as usual, has a lot of potentially good parts, but they live or die by the Neymar Mbappe duo. Di Maria's not getting younger. And so I think the pressure's on for him to show that he can make his team one of the best in Europe. And right now they haven't been showing that. Yeah, for me the biggest story coming out of this game was that Nogglesman ditched the suits he went with a, uh, a tasteful black jacket, maroon sweater, gray jeans combo. Uh, he looked straight out of an express catalog. So I think overall, I was impressed with the adjustments made by Julian Nagelsmann in this game. <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly, that's what brought the three points uh, Dude, honestly. to RBL. Um, I, did find, I did find it interesting how generally consistently poor, like how, how consistent he is with dressing with these like terrible combinations. Like, I'm just not sure exactly what he's trying. Um, but yeah, listen, I, I understand, man. Like, you're 32, you know, you're up and coming, as you said, Nathan. He's a up and coming top manager. You know, you want to look the part, but I think he was looking a little like Monopoly man there for a second and not like football manager. 
And I think certainly like when you're getting asked questions about your outfit in the media over, you know, your team's play on the pitch, I think something definitely had to change uh, quite literally in this case. So I was, <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, he's, he's in like a, you know, a normal jacket, you know, a normal sweater and some normal jeans. So like he looks like a normal person instead of, um, you know, like a prospector from the 1920s. Yeah, that's my take on Nogglesman's outfits. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> Moving on from Julian Nogglesman, Caleb, Barcelona. <laughs> Barcelona. <laughs> Barcelona <laughs> played out a pretty tense game <laughs> at the Camp Nou against the weakened Dynamo Kiev side. That was probably marked by the fact that uh, due to Dynamo Kiev's outstanding absences due to COVID-19, they deployed an 18-year-old goalkeeper in this game who saved a direct free kick from Messi. He had uh, a number of other amazing shots saved in this game. Um, But at the end of the day, (laughs) Barcelona narrowly... (laughs) (laughs) Barcelona get through uh, two to one... (laughs) You know, not not the most convincing performance <laughs> from the Balkana. <laughs> what was your take on, you know, after the Alaves defeat, you wanted to respond with the positive result in Europe. But what do you think? Is just three points one? Okay. Okay. Let's relax, everyone. Um, <laughs> this, um, yes, what's good? This was not the most convincing performance and that I think we should have won five nil or something like that, but only put up two despite having 14 goals on target and, you know, credit should be given to Neshret, however you pronounce the Kiev Kiev keeper's name who had 12 saves um, as an 18 year old, but Barcelona dominated this whole game. We we were so much more positive than against all of us. Obviously, yes, I think I agree. what's missing right now is like there's a certain clinicality that's still missing. I mean, Griezmann missed, you know, an open goal like five minutes in, and you know, Messi once again did not look super sharp in terms of his shooting from open play. Uh, but this this was a much much better performance. I'm not sure we need De Jong to play center back. That seems slightly excessive. Um, but I thought Busquets, you know, had a good game after a series of poor games so i will take this it was not a narrow win it was a comfortable win and they got you know a consolation goal in the 75th minute and i will not accept any other interpretation yeah if you're if you're wondering about what all the laughter was about earlier nathan and caleb (laughs) joined our little call here and they got into a little bit of a row about the definition of a narrow victory in soccer, <laughs> hence my use of the word narrow. So yeah, I think Nathan overall, it was a um, a more spirited performance from Barcelona. I think they created a lot more offensively, genuine chances than they did in the Alaves game. I think they're starting to kind of refine what their best eleven is under Kuman. Uh, it was interesting to see the Diong PK pairing start from the beginning as center back, certainly, but. Once again, I think, you know, Busquets probably on his last legs in this team. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to be fair, I think it probably should have been 3-0 within the first 10 minutes. You had that Pedri shot that went off the bar and almost crossed the line. And then literally like 30 seconds later, you had Griezmann whiffing on an open goal, a la uh, Caleb Rhodes in the JV soccer days. Um, 
So all I think in all, the expectations are a little different from Kato yeah. as a defender on JV soccer than Griezmann. But that, I don't think, that, that's I don't a think good the point. JV soccer team is shilling out club record feeds to get Caleb Rhodes in it right back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or maybe uh, they were. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I was wrong in saying that it was a narrow victory. It was only a narrow victory nominally. I think Barca played pretty well. And they're now in firm control of this group. I saw this stat that said that I think Barcelona haven't lost a game when there's a possibility of them securing uh, passage in the Champions League in something like 10 years, uh, which is pretty nuts. And they have a 100% record in the Champions League so far in a group that they should now be expected to win. Hopefully they can wrap up that that group stage uh, crown before they have to play Juve a second time. But other than that, I mean, it's sort of just, you know, everyday business for for Komen. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also important to note on the Juve front, Cristiano Ronaldo back in the Juventus team and back scoring goals. So I think if you're Barcelona, you definitely want to accumulate as many points as possible until they face Cristiano Ronaldo uh, for the first time this season in like that Messi-Ronaldo reunited matchup that we were robbed of due to COVID-19. But lads, let's move on to Tuesday. There was this this one Tuesday. This was goals galore. Goals all over the place. Goals in Italy, goals in Madrid, goals in the Ukraine. Uh Nathan, let's begin obviously with the marquee game, Real Madrid versus Inter Milan. It looked like it was going to be a walk in the park for Real. When I when they went 2-0 up, I thought, okay, now they're gonna sit back a little bit and you know calm it down but this game was incredibly incredibly open you got to see some of the real attacking talent from both sides Latar Martinez scored and assisted and maybe could have had another uh and then you got to see Rodrigo finally delivering that end product um as when he scored that goal in the 80th minute so all in all not a great result for Inter but also Real Madrid and Inter are both now are both still outside of the uh qualification places with Munchen Gladbach and Donetsk having taken advantage of some of those earlier results. So it's a huge win for Real Madrid and it could be a fatal loss for Inter. Yeah, this is this is a very bad, bad result for Inter. And I think what we're seeing is Inter's defense is actually not that good right now. I think they need to bring Skriniar back into the team a little bit more, but Bastoni just looks a little bit youthful. D'Ambrosio is being played out of position, right? Because he's more of a wide player. And then Hakimi just clearly showing a little bit of nerves with that terrible back pass that let Benzema, you know, round Handanovic and stab it home. But I think all in all, this is actually a very good result for Madrid, especially in the Champions League where they've been poor. And I think it was nice to see for them, at least, you know, Vinicius and Rodrigo linking up because in theory, they're the future of the team. But in the present, their offensive output is also in some sense what's holding this team back. Um and so I think getting the Madrid attacking players back into the swing of things, having Hazard, um, having Vinicius, having Rodrigo sort of in and amongst the goals only bodes well for a team that has, you know, had some jitters early in this year. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that this was Sergio Ramos's hundredth goal for Real Madrid, which as a center back is an absolutely absurd number to reap for him. And I think you can kind of tell like in the past couple of weeks that this Real Madrid team is an entirely different outfit when Ramos is in the team versus when he's out of the team. I think when he's in the team, you can see that he 
is leading not only by example, but he's leading. I think there, the levels just pick up when he's on the pitch for Real Madrid all across the board. And I think not only that, he provides them a lot of organization as the back as at the back as well. I think Varane looks way more assured when he's playing alongside Ramos versus when he's playing alongside Militao. For Inter, it's worrying because they're not able to hold on to these results, both in Serie A and in the Champions League. I think, you know, the result to look at in the Champions League was their first game against Gladbach, where it was back when Lukaku was not injured. And I think that Lukaku injury is proving to be really fatal for them as well. Went on to draw in that game. And they also, like, were looking like they were going to cruise to a positive result in Madrid. And it they just their formation just got outdone again so i don't know if it's it's a case of ancelotti uh, conte needs to like rework the pieces at wing back because i don't think ashley young had a particularly good game either or if maybe he needs to like caleb said get some more resolute defensive pieces in the side while he still can to salvage this yeah, yeah. and it, it also should be said right like inter were close to taking the lead Yes. Right. Ataro yes. banged it off the bar. Perisic missed a goal quickly after, and that all preceded Rodrigo's goal. So it was very close. I think I'd also like to see Christian Eriksen get a few more minutes in this side um, because I think he can help unsettle, you know, a defense, a Madrid defense, and other defenses that have been kind of shaky this year. Because because Inter didn't create that many chances. They only had three shots on target, and I think someone like Eriksen can definitely increase that stat for them. Yeah, and I think the other interesting thing to note, Caleb, as you pointed out, uh, Vinicius, when he was driving down the wing in search of uh, a cross into the box, he had two people to aim at, one of which was Karim Benzema, but he ends up going with the harder pass to Rodrigo instead, and it pays off after all of the uh, the Benzema-Vinicius controversy this week. Definitely one of the definitely one of the funnier side pieces from that game, uh, for sure. But going back to the Christian Eriksen point, it seems like he's going to be on his way out in January. That's what uh, I think DeMarzo was saying this past week because he just has not, you know, fit in well with Conte. I don't know whether it's a personality. It was always a bit of a weird. It was always a bit of a weird transfer for what Conte was trying to do with his inter team. Anyways, I felt right because he's he's not solid enough defensively and he doesn't contribute enough goals going forward. It seems like he would be a better fit for a team that plays a more natural with a more natural number 10. Like Roma is one of the teams that have been bandied about for him. And it seems like for whatever it's worth, Erickson fits the Roma, uh, you know, transfer profile better than anyone else right now. If you look at who they have on their roster, but all in all, Inter are in real danger of, you know, not even qualifying for the Europa League. So they now basically have to take, I think, you know, at least seven points from their last three games in the Champions League. Yeah, and Real Madrid is obviously their return their return game in the Champions League when they come back from international break, so it's not going to get any easier for Antonio Conte in Europe. Lads, shall we move on to another Italian club in Atalanta? Yes, Nick, tell us, tell us, regale us with the tales of um, Liverpool's domination of Atalanta. <laughs> yeah, so in theory... When the group draw was made, right, I was like, ooh, Atalanta away. That's probably going to be our toughest fixture of the group. No offense to Ajax, who I think I also thought was going to be a difficult game. But, you know, the highs of Atalanta last season were such that I was like, ooh, without Virgil van Dijk, this is going to be a really a really tough uh, ask for the Liverpool back line. Turns out, 
not the case. Uh, Atalanta played right into Liverpool's hands here. I think their expansiveness with their back three is exactly what Liverpool feast on when it comes to creating those overloads from wide positions. Trent Alexander-Arnold had probably his best game of the entire season, offering up an assist as well. And I think you mentioned it there, Caleb. The player who benefited the most from the way Atalanta were set up throughout the game was Diogo Jota, playing far more of a center forward role than we've seen any Liverpool player play recently. Uh, he was, you know, cutting in from the left hand side, cutting in from the right hand side. But I think the most interesting thing to me, and especially when Roberto Firmino came on in the second half, was that Jota doesn't drop back nearly as much as Firmino does. So he was, you know, reaping the rewards of being a true striker center forward in this Liverpool team. And he walks away with a really beautiful hat trick. I think three, you know, really compelling, difficult finishes, especially his second goal, where he just kind of one touches it down, controls it, and then fires into uh, the near post. So I'm interested to see what you guys think, especially with the City game on the horizon. And I also thought another really good performance from Joe Gomez and Reese Williams as well, someone who was playing non-league football last season, coming in and keeping his third clean sheet in the Champions League this season. Yeah, and I think with Atalanta, you kind of know what you're going to get right? Like we, we talked about them last year and we know that they score a ton of goals and also concede a ton of goals oftentimes in separate games. So looking at their results this year, 4-2 win, 4-1 win, 5-2 win, 4-1 loss, 4-0 win, 3-1 loss, and then a 2-2 draw and a 2-1 loss before this 5-0 loss. So it's a, you know, Atalanta live by goals and die by goals and, you know, they very clearly died this time. But I don't see how, if you're Jurgen Klopp, you can keep Jota on the bench for the match that's coming up this weekend. It, it, I mean, Jota played 65 minutes and was the best player on the pitch for every single one of them, I thought. And especially with a game of the importance as... that, that A game that has the importance of Liverpool City and knowing that Liverpool are probably going to... are still going to be fairly thin at the back Starting Jota, someone who can just take a little bit of the pressure off of their defense, I think is is going to be really huge. Nick, do you know what the center back pairing is projected to be for Sunday? My guess is that Klopp is going to go with Joe Gomez and Joel Matip for this game, especially seeing as, you know, Nat Phillips has just made, even though he was pretty decent against West Ham, I thought especially aerially, I think he'll go with the more seasoned combo of Joe Gomez and Joel Matip for what's going to be like a more a more technical game against Man City, I would say. Yeah, so that's at least, you know, I would say that that's probably, that's at least a center, uh, a Premier League quality center back pairing, even if it's a far cry from where uh, Liverpool would be without, uh, or with Van Dyke rather. But all in all, this is a huge game for Liverpool because I think it showed what can happen when you when they truly kick into gear. We didn't really see that same Liverpool swagger against Michelin. We definitely didn't see it against Ajax. But against Atalanta, they just showed how punishing they can be in a way that we haven't really seen since maybe even before Project Restart of last year. So it looks like Liverpool are getting back into you know their, their true form, which can only be a good thing for you. I was very impressed with this result because this Atalanta team is not that that changed from last year. I mean, the only big change in their 11, honestly, is the loss of Castagna to Leicester. And I don't think that change alone is responsible from for going from like a competitive team to a team that's losing five to Liverpool. But just focusing on Liverpool, I agree. I think 
I think I really think that they they have to drop Firmino for the game this weekend. I think you don't mess with the hot hand. You don't mess with the player that has scored more goals in his 10 games for Liverpool than Firmino has scored in the entirety of 2020. Um, and especially considering that Liverpool are objectively weakened on defense, I think having more goal threats going forward is going to help put City on the back foot um, a little more because Liverpool just can't rely on defensive solidity as much as they could in the past. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting when it comes to Sunday and the team sheets are unveiled because my bet is that Roberto Firmino actually does start this game. I think Jurgen Klopp is going to... He's someone who who trusts in the players that have been in the system for a long time. And I think in a game like Man City, where we're kind of going to be reliant on a midfield battle, I think he, he probably thinks that having Firmino drop into his usual unique role as a center forward is is might be more suitable to the game than having Jota kind of patrol at a striker position. But I also just think, like, look at the way that Leicester played Man City earlier this season, where it was entirely contingent on, you know, Jamie Vardy and Harvey Barnes beating Man City's center backs at, at will, essentially. So I think having a player like Diogo Jota who's able to create that chaos up front like Caleb was saying, I think is going to be extremely vital to our success in this game. And it's a game where we normally don't don't perform that well. You know, the results don't go, normally go our way at the Eddie Had. If I was Jurgen Klopp, I think you do have to feed the hot hand. Just another outrageous statistic on Jota. He scored more Liverpool goals in his first 10 appearances than everyone but Robbie Fowler, which means he scored more goals in his first 10 appearances than Salah, Suarez, Torres, Mane, Sturridge, Coutinho, just about any other Liverpool player except for Robbie Fowler. So he's an, on an absolute tear right now. Uh, that 40 million looks like an absolute bargain. And I think if you are Jurgen Klopp, you do have to feed the hot hand that is Diogo Jota coming into the Man City game. Another fun Jota stat is that in the 65 minutes he was on the pitch, he had almost double the expected goals of the entire Atalanta team. Yeah, I just think it just goes to show how much work Liverpool do put into these transfers. And in terms of Diogo Jota, this is someone that uh, Pep Linders, the Liverpool assistant manager, has had his eye on for up to two years now. So I think it just goes to show that, you know, scouting and analytics goes a long way in Liverpool's success. And they've they've pulled it off again in Diogo Jota. So I'm excited to see what exactly he can do, if he can keep this form up. And I think the Mane, Sala, Jota trio as a trial in Bergamo worked better than anyone ever thought was imaginable. Yeah, and I mean, like, I guess one one good thing for Liverpool is I don't think, it doesn't seem to me that Jota's the type of player to even when he's playing really well, you know, be affected by not starting every game like we saw last weekend, him coming off the bench and scoring. And so I think even if Firmino starts, we can still expect like a fully energized and sort of motivated Jota um, no matter how many minutes he ultimately ends up playing. Yeah, I think the really good thing that is going to happen in about three weeks in terms of Liverpool is they're going to start to get a lot of these pieces back that they've been missing throughout the beginning of the season. Like, I think you look at how many injuries they had, they've had already. They've had 13 first-team injuries throughout the course of this season, and this season is extremely young still. So uh, Thiago, I don't think he's going to be ready to go for the City game. That's a big miss. I think Fabinho is going to be back after the international break. Obviously, Matip is back now. Kaita is back now. So I think once you get 
this team back. Chamberlain is set to be back soon as well. So once you get once once this team gets back into you know driving as a full complete first team without the vast amount of injuries, Chimikas was also back in this game as well. So I just think you know Van Dyke is a big miss, but there's quality all over this Liverpool squad that I think we've just sort of forgotten about since this team has been so injury prone recently. We can now move maybe to one of the I think highlight games from the last round to round out our, our Champions League discussion. That is. Borussia Mönchengladbach's 6-0 drubbing, destruction, domination, all, all everything. Donetsk. Um, <laughs> I don't know who wants to, to take the first word on this. Yeah, I'm just going to make an apology right off the top here because I've been a big fan of Shakhtar on this podcast. And I just don't want you to think that I've been anyone to think that I've been leading them astray <laughs> in this love of Shakhtar, that I've been catfishing them with Shakhtar love. Uh, I swear they're a good team, but they got absolutely picked apart by a Mönchengladbach team that is on a tear right now, both in the Bundesliga and in the Champions League. Alessandro Plea scored some of the nicest goals that you'll see in the Champions League, uh, at least to this point. But yeah, Mönchengladbach are undefeated in 10 games across all competitions, including a win against Leipzig, who were undefeated in the Bundesliga at that time and the draw with uh, Real Madrid. But this was just an absolute demolition. And I think, talking about your Shakhtar fandom for a minute, Shakhtar's B team that they played when you know they had the, uh, in their game against Real Madrid, performed a lot better. And I think that's one of the reasons why they went to the bench with a, a halftime triple sub, um, having been down 4-0. And of course, Alisson Playa rewarded after his... Uh, after his goal, after his goals with that hat trick, with his first ever France call up, I believe. You know, Playa has always been sort of the understudy to Tiram in this Glockbox setup. So it was really nice to see him kind of be the star man with three goals and an assist, a player that I've kind of keenly had my eye on ever since he was at Nice. So it's good to see him blossoming into a, a Bundesliga goal scorer and a Champions League goal scorer at that. Also, um, Credit to Marco Hossa, who's another one of the the Leipzig coaching or the the RB coaching uh, tree. And they seem to, you know, as much as we talk about how Leipzig and Salzburg and, and Liefering, et cetera, et cetera, produce good players, they also look to be producing some really, really impressive coaching talents um, in, in guys like Nagelsmann and obviously Jesse Marsh as well. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, Shakhtar... Might be regressing to the mean in the most devastating way possible with a 6-0 home defeat uh, in the Ukraine. I guess if you are going to go to the Ukraine, it's a tough away day for any side. uh, But I guess winning 6-0 away is probably the best it could possibly go for you. But I think that the state of Group B, though, still makes it, I think, one of the most exciting groups left with Mujin Gladbach leading the way with only five points followed by Shakhtar on four, Madrid also on four, and then Inter on two. So it might be one of the few groups that is still like truly, truly wide open for any two teams to go through. Yeah, you have to think that the result of the Inter-Real Madrid game at the San Siro is going to essentially define the way this group looks in about like a month's time, right? Or two months' time. Are there any other big matches? Oh, wait. No, there is one more thing I want to talk about from Tuesday. And that is Porto beating Marseille 3-0. 
And it's the quote afterwards <laughs> from, from Marseille manager Andre Villas-Boas, whose side sit with zero points, three defeats, and a goal difference of negative seven in his Champions League group in uh, Group C. And afterwards, uh, AVB, obviously, you know, infamously former Spurs and Chelsea manager and race car driver extraordinaire, came out and said, in order to be shit in the Champions League, you have to at least qualify for the Champions League. We did it. And we are being shit. (laughs) So perhaps not all is well in the Marseille camp. If you have friends who support Marseille, uh, it might be time to go check on them and see how they're doing. Uh, You know, we hope for the best. The Velodrome is one of the best stadiums to go to in Europe, but I think it's not going super well for them over there in Group C. Just wanted to highlight that. Portuguese (laughs) managers have a way with words. Are there any other significant games, both in the Champions League and the Europa League, that happened today that we want to highlight? I mean, I think we should talk, we can talk for a minute about Benfica Rangers. Oh, dude. Uh, What a match. Yeah, you texted uh, this morning saying... You know, Benfica Rangers is a hell of a match or something like that. Um, and I, you know, because I was sort of, my curiosity was piqued and I wasn't, I didn't really know what to expect because I, I don't watch as much Scottish premiership as you do. And, you know, I, this is not a matchup that I might have had on um, otherwise, but this game was incredible. You had uh, Rangers going up within the first, or pardon me, you had Benfica going up within the first two minutes. And then you had Otamendi getting sent off after 20 minutes. You had Rangers seemingly creating, you know, attack after attack after attack. And then all of a sudden, Benfica mount this crazy comeback, basically after the introduction of Darwin Nunez. Um, And they, of course, ended up coming back from being down 3-1 and down a man uh, to, to tie the game up in the 90th minute via a Nunez goal. So this is the kind of matchup that the Europa League uh, that you'll only find in the Europa League. You know, two teams that are relatively elite in their domestic leagues, but, you know, maybe not quite of Champions League level. It was a, a really fun watch, I think. Yeah, I think Steven Gerrard's Rangers have slowly become one of the most compelling stories in Europe that's not being talked about right now because this team is unbeaten this season. And Gerard, while he's been at Rangers... He's guided them through, I would say, a few successful tours in Europe, in the Europa League. Uh, He's only lost three games in his tenure as Rangers manager in Europe. He's done incredibly well with this Rangers side. I think, you know, with Celtic losing 4-1 at home today to uh, Slavia Prague, you can see that the balance of power that Gerard has kind of done the impossible, or what a lot of people thought was impossible, and firmly tipped the balance of power in Scotland back towards Glasgow Rangers. And I think I was a bit skeptical, you know, when people were saying that in 2024, when both him and Klopp's contracts expire at their respective clubs, uh, Gerard was going to come and take the job at Liverpool. But now seeing the way that he's developed this Rangers team into a really, really technically capable side, both in Europe and domestically, I'm a little bit more confident in him coming into Liverpool and picking up after Klopp. All right, wait, one more Europa League game I want to throw out there. AC Milan losing. To oh, Jesus. <laughs> I feel like our podcast did something of a commentator's curse after yep. talking them up for two or three episodes now. They have come crashing down and 
we we'll see, I guess, what they do in in uh, in Italy this weekend because this this was not it, folks. Yeah, this was horrible. This is as horrible as horrible could be from uh, from AC Milan. They conceded six shots on target to this Lille team. Uh, I think they just got beat by pace by Jonathan Akone and Jonathan David, the Jonathan duo, and Jonathan Bamba. There was three Jonathans torturing AC Milan in this game. And I think you could just see that fatigue was slowly starting to creep into Milan's play throughout this one. A Yazici hat trick for the 22-year-olds and just not the results you want from AC Milan who have finally lost a game this season. Yeah, I, I will say, I think Lille are, are one of the dark horse favorites or in my mind for the Europa League because they're a team that is perfectly built for this Europa League competition. They've got enough talent that is going to wind up going on to, you know, major European clubs, but also with an incredible system uh, led by Christophe Galtier, um, who has got this team up and running. They've got a goalie in Mike Magnan who was projected to, or who could easily have gone to Chelsea over Edouard Mendy. They've got, you know, Jonathan David, who is their record transfer this year. And then Yazici, who has scored two Europa League hat tricks, plus a revitalized yeah, Renato Sanchez. Say, the revitalization of Renato Sanchez. You know, the Swansea move didn't pay out as, uh, pan out as many of us thought it might, but he is certainly revitalizing his career in Liga with Lille. Plus, uh, you know, experience at the back with Jose Font, and then one of the best money for or value for money transfers of the summer in Sven Botman, um, who arrived from Ajax. No. So this is a, this is a fun Lille team to watch. You can see how it allowed a talent like Nicola Pepe, despite his woes at Arsenal, to flourish um, in this system. Well, that, that's the thing with Lille, right? They have a pretty famous pedigree for developing young talent and the superstars. And I think there's, like Ajax in 2018, at some point, all of the, that talent just converges to make a really competitive squad in Europe. And you're kind of seeing it, you know, with Lille. When you think about Lille, you, know, you think about Eden Hazard, Nico Pepe, uh, a flurry of other players that I could probably name. But I think now you're seeing like with Ikone, Yazici, Sanchez, Sanchez being in the mix, David as well, who's a young player who's going to flourish in Liga. I think Tim, Tim Weah. Tim Weah as well, who's on the mend. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think this team could could contend. Well, I would also like to bring up one more Europa League thing about the Arsenal game before we wrap up, perhaps. It has come to my attention that Elling- Martin Ellingson, who scored against them, is a part-time electrician. <laughs> Dude, can you imagine that? Uh, the thing that I realized during this game is that Solskjaer, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, just to bring this conversation entirely back around, was mm-hmm. the former manager of Molda. Yeah, that, which is which is wild. In another timeline, we probably could have seen Ole at the wheel of Molda in this Europa League game. Yeah, but you know, exactly. instead, yeah, instead it was a pretty comfortable Arsenal win after a scare with uh, Molda going up one nil. But I think you're kind of what you're seeing, and I don't know if Nathan agrees with this, but I, what what you're kind of seeing in this Europa League schedule for Arsenal is that Arteta is kind of ironing out the cracks when it comes to what formations he's going to play and what tactics he's going to deploy and just kind of, it is sort of a testing ground for this Arsenal squad right now. Yeah. I think there are some benefits to being in the Europa league um, over the, you know, the champions league, when you look at where Arsenal are right now. And first of all, I think it affords playing time to youngsters like Joe Willock and Eddie and who probably shouldn't be getting into the squad um, 
in this into the first team squad in the same way that they did for the Premier League last year. Uh, and guys like Reese Nelson as well and Emil Smith Rowe who are both injured. Um, but also you get to see Arteta drilling the four at the back a lot more now, which I think is is pretty encouraging. Um, we saw them line up in that same formation against United, and we also have seen it over the three games of the Europa League so far. Arsenal have done exactly what has been expected so far with, you know, three pretty comfortable wins. And, uh, you know, the goal they conceded, the, the two goals they've conceded, one of them was a misplaced back pass and the other one was a 25-yard banger. So it's sort of just business as usual for Arsenal. They should be able to walk through the rest of the group uh, unbeaten and uh, then presumably start fielding some stronger sides in the round of 32 and onward. I don't know, Nathan, you still have to travel to the mighty Dundalk. Exactly. The mighty Dundalk, the, 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 the... you want to talk about some part-time electricians. Yeah. I think that'll do it for today on both the champions league and the Europa league fronts. We will be back to you at the beginning of next week with a roundup of all of this, all of this weekend's soccer coverage. Probably we, maybe, maybe we might sound a little less stressed by that point as well. Uh, but we shall see. We hope you all are staying safe and staying sane in these times. But until next time, I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Rhodes, and as promised, the results from Nevada remain inconclusive. <laughs> well, you heard it here first. Just, <laughs> just call us CNN, the Corner Kick News Network. And I've been Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>